Pushkin. Small business owners, this one's for you. Chase for Business and iHeart bring you a new podcast series called The Unshakables. This one-of-a-kind series will shine the spotlight on small business owners like you, who faced a do-or-die moment that ultimately made their business what it is today. Learn more at chase.com slash business slash podcast. Chase, make more of what's yours. Chase mobile app is available for select mobile devices. Message and data rates may apply. J.P. Morgan Chase Bank, N.A. member, FDIC. Copyright 2024, J.P. Morgan, Chase & Co. The most innovative companies are going further with T-Mobile for Business. The PGA of America is helping lower scores and elevate fan experiences with AI coaching tools and 5G-connected cameras. AAA is getting more drivers back on the road fast with location telematics. And the Las Vegas Grand Prix is powering race day operations with 5G connectivity, giving fans an experience at the speed they deserve. This is accelerating innovation with T-Mobile for Business. Take your business further at tmobile.com slash now. Experts claim there is nothing tougher than a diamond. But at Diamonds Direct, we beg to differ. Have you ever met a mother? Strong, radiant, timeless. This Mother's Day, give her the gift that meets her match. With diamond jewelry starting at $200, plus Diamonds Direct's exceptional quality and unbeatable everyday price, you're sure to give her a gift that wows this generation and the next to come. Experience the thrill of jewelry shopping done right at Diamonds Direct. Diamonds Direct. Your love, our passion. From Pushkin Industries, this is Deep Background, the show where we explore the stories behind the stories in the news. I'm Noah Feldman. This season, we're exploring power. Power in the legal system, power in the media, the power of personality, you name it. This is not our usual kind of episode. It's still about power, but in an unusual way. This past February, the New York Times released a documentary called Framing Britney Spears, a film about Britney's rise to stardom and the conservatorship, a legal form of guardianship, she's been in since 2008. The film brought renewed scrutiny to Britney's conservatorship and also to conservatorship more broadly. In a remarkable twist, some House Republicans are now calling for national conservatorship reform. Here to help us understand conservatorship law and what happened to Britney Spears is Adam Streisand. He's a trial attorney and really, in truth, an attorney to the stars. He's always involved in high-profile litigation and private wealth disputes of large magnitude. If you saw the documentary, you will know who he is. In the run-up to the conservatorship application, Britney Spears met with Adam and she hired Adam. That means, in legal terms, he was her lawyer. He then went into court, where the judge determined that Britney Spears was unable, in legal terms, to hire her own attorney and to pick her own attorney, and therefore gave her a court-appointed attorney who represents her to this day. Adam is going to walk us through conservatorship. He's going to discuss whether reform is needed, and if so, how. And he's also going to talk about his experiences with Britney's case and what it means at the bigger level. Adam hasn't given any interviews to any other media source that I know of since appearing in the documentary. So we're particularly lucky that he agreed to appear here on Deep Background to take us behind the story of Britney Spears' conservatorship. Adam, I'm so grateful to you for being here on Deep Background. I'll tell you the, the backstory from my perspective, which is that since the, the documentary about Britney's conservatorship, I can't even count how many people, professional and unprofessional, have said to me, you know, Noah, you know, tell us what we should think about conservatorship. And I said to them, look, I'm not an expert on conservatorship. I barely remember what I learned about it in law school. I don't even play an expert on TV. Let's talk to a real expert. And I, I sort of realized at some point that the public interest in this is so fundamental and the issues behind it are so significant that it's really worth having a conversation with someone who genuinely is an expert um, and who has firsthand knowledge of the situation. So that's, that's the backstory of how you're here. And so I wonder if we could start by just walking 
the folks through, and that includes me, the 101 of conservatorship, what it's for, how it's established, and when it's well-functioning, whether it's a good idea. Right. So the most important thing to know about conservatorships is that it's a process that's designed to protect people who are vulnerable. And they may be vulnerable because of mental illness, uh, dementia, other conditions which cause them to be either unable to manage their own lives, their own daily activities of living, getting appropriate health care, feeding themselves, obtaining shelter, and also making financial decisions. And very importantly, resisting the influence of people who might want to take advantage of them. And let's be clear, there is a lot of that going on, especially as our population continues to age. Healthcare is better and better. People are living longer lives, but it's sort of the Ronald Reagan syndrome. They're, they're, they're healthy physically, but not necessarily mentally. They become more and more vulnerable and susceptible to influence of others who are simply unable to really manage their their own lives, you know, make sure they're paying taxes on time. Yeah, seen from that perspective, it sounds like we need conservatorship in our system because there are people who are aging or people who have other underlying disease and they really do need to be taken care of. So what are the safeguards that are in place presently? And then we can talk about whether they're good enough so that not just anyone is placed in a conservatorship. Sure. So... Conservatorships are actually really, really tough to obtain. You have to be able to approve to a court at a trial by clear and convincing evidence, right? So that means not just your normal civil standard of more probable than not, and not your criminal standard of beyond a reasonable doubt, but somewhere in between, a clear and convincing evidence standard that the person needs a conservatorship because they're unable to manage their own affairs or, or resist undue influence by others. And you also have to show that a conservatorship is what we call the least restrictive means available in order to protect them. Because there are other ways in which people can be protected. For example, if your assets are held in trust and you have a trustee, the trustee has the power to make financial decisions. You can influence me all you want, but I don't have that power anymore. My assets are in trust. Or I have a healthcare directive, a power of attorney for healthcare decisions, or I'm getting, you know, I have care in place to help me with my daily living. So I don't necessarily need the framework of a conservatorship. But unfortunately, a lot of people don't have those things. And conservatorships are, are really the best means available to protect them. What's unusual, of course, about the Brittany case, um, it's not unique, but it's unusual, is that she's young, okay? She has been in a conservatorship for 13 years, and she seems to be functioning, right? I mean, we see her on stage performing. We see her on television co-hosting a TV show. And we say to ourselves, well, wait a minute. If this is a conservatorship is supposed to be a system to protect people who can't function on their own, and, and only when they really can't function on their own, how is it appropriate for her? Because she seems to be able to function. The problem is we just don't really know what's going on behind the scenes. And that's the real problem at this case. I have a, a whole barrage of questions about sure. the trial procedure. Shoot. But before I get to them, I first want to, I was really struck by what you said about uh, that a trust would be considered an alternative. And it does seem like a less restrictive alternative. So why isn't it the case that for just about anybody who would be in a position where conservatorship would be applied for, that a court would say, actually, no, let's just create a trust, put your assets in the trust, and appoint a trustee? Brittany's assets are in trust. And there is a trustee. And so you might ask, well, then why does Brittany have a conservator of the estate? Well, it can be useful to have a conservator of the estate who can be the one to make sure the trustee is doing his job. And a conservatorship might be useful for that purpose if the, if the conservatee can't really do that and make sure, hey, the trustee is not, you know, dipping or doing things inappropriate. That's actually fascinating because to watch the documentary, one had the sense that uh, the conservatorship has some fundamentally transformational effect on her, how her affairs are run. But if actually her wealth is in trust and the trustee is not 
the person who's the conservator, which I guess is the father, it may be that it doesn't make such a big difference that she's in conservatorship, which would in turn to some degree undercut the perhaps the newsworthiness of the whole formulation, which is, oh my goodness, this is so shocking. I mean, if the story were, you know, stars assets in trust, no one would find that shocking because many, many people's assets are in trust. Yes. And I want to say two things to that. First of all, when you're talking about a celebrity, a celebrity oftentimes engages in what we call personal service contracts, right? When they actually agree to perform, that's a personal service contract that the trustee of your assets can't make. So there is a need for her to have somebody who can make a decision for things like, you know, performing at concerts, no, no doubt. So just to clarify, I think, I think I understand. The striking thing then about the conservator is that Britney Spears can't even sign a contract to appear and sing or do whatever else she'd be doing in her appearance without the conservator signing essentially on her behalf. Exactly. Whereas right. if it were a trust, that's just in a trust, you take the asset that you have, whether it's money or real estate, you put it into the trust and that asset gets managed, but the trustee doesn't manage your day-to-day affairs. And so that does make it actually pretty distinctive. Well, that sounds like it, it's a it more, more of a justification for the, for the documentary than there otherwise might have been. Yeah, certainly in the, in the context of an entertainer. But it's really important now to understand that conservatorships are actually fairly limited in terms of what they can really do to protect somebody. Yes, they can make sure that if there's a contract that needs to be signed, a conservator has to sign that contract. You can't walk up to somebody who's incapacitated and have them sign away their, you know, their house that you don't have the power to do that. The problem a lot of times with conservatorships, though, is they are limited in terms of how much you can really help a person. And let me explain to you what I mean by that. One of the most heartbreaking things that I, that, that I have in my practice is I've get, I get parents who call me all the time and they have kids who are adults, but they have terrible drug problems. They have terrible eating disorders. They, they really are you know, um, having problems living on the street and they really need help. And what I have to tell them is a conservatorship is probably not going to help. And the reason is that you can't really force somebody who's in a conservatorship to be compliant with things like medications or going into a treatment program. You can't sign somebody into a lockdown facility. You can't force them to take medications. So if they're really not compliant, if they're not willing to cooperate, conservatorships are pretty limited. There's a whole separate type of conservatorship that's called an LPS conservatorship in California, which are the initials for the, for the legislators who designed it. And that's a conservatorship where you can actually lock somebody up. You can put them in a mental institution, you can force medications and so forth. They're extremely rare. You have to prove by essentially a quasi-criminal standard that they're gravely disabled uh, and they're a threat to either themselves or others. And no one except a mental health facility, a hospital, a, a psychiatric ward, can actually seek that type of conservatorship. So a family member can't, uh, a friend can't. It's got to be the hospital that says we need the, this protection for that person. So conservatorships, the kind that Brittany's in, are actually pretty limited. That other kind you're describing, the LPS kind, it sounds like it's a version of civil committal. It, it really is. Yeah, where you have to prove to the court, you know, by a very, very high standard that the person is a threat to themselves or others, and then they can be involuntarily restrained in a range of ways. That's right. And, yeah. and so, you know, there's a lot of stuff out there about, you know, Brittany can't can't leave the house. She can't take a walk. She can't. Uh, none, of, none of that's you know, true. None of that is none of that is true. It's great that people are now interested in what is a conservatorship and, and does it really work? And that is important. But unfortunately, and I know this is going to be shocking to you, but there are legislators who like to grandstand. Um, and, in, in our country? Yeah. And who want to, you know, show that they're, you know, being responsive to, to some public outcry. And, you know, my fear is that uh, all of the attention that, it, that this is getting 
will lead to some laws that that will undermine the system and leave people who really need protection without the protection that they that they really do need. So law reform that makes it much harder to get conservatorships will therefore leave fewer people with conservatorships, and it will also probably raise the cost. Uh, people probably have to pay attorney's fees to get this done, and it will cost cost them more, presumably. What about the who guards the guardians problem? Once you are the conservator, is there any function or role for anybody to look over the shoulder of the conservator and check on the quality of the, the work that person is doing? Yeah, so that's a, that's a really great question. So, uh, look, first of all, let me say, I don't think the problem with conservatorships or necessarily this conservatorship is a problem of the law. I think the law, in terms of the framework that it establishes, is, is appropriate, and it balances the difficult nature of trying to obtain a conservatorship and maintain a conservatorship even after you get it, and protecting the rights of, of the proposed conservatee. But, you know, we have a judicial system that has elasticity because we need to make sure that in each appropriate case, it makes sense based on the facts of that case. And we also have a system that depends on people. And that means we, ha- we have lawyers, we have judges, and other professionals, doctors, court investigators, all of whom are human. And it is possible that you will find somebody who is corrupt, uh, who is unethical, or, or a judge who frankly isn't that smart and makes a bad decision. Believe it or not, that happens. Shocking. But I, so, so far, I've yet to see a judicial system that's better than ours um, in terms of the advocacy that it's based on. An advocacy that is everybody's interest, interests being argued to the court and the court making a decision is the best way to find the best version of the truth, as Woodward and Bernstein say. Let, let me ask you about the advocacy structures and how they worked here. So um, if there's an application for a conservatorship, does that automatically mean that sort of counsel is appointed if the person for whom it's sought just acquiesces? I mean, Brittany didn't contest this conservatorship, did she? She didn't. So let me just... let back up a little bit and tell you, we have somebody who can petition the court for conservatorship. That can be a family member, that can be a friend, who can ask the court to establish conservatorship. And they're the one who have to prove that a conservatorship is necessary. Other friends, family members can object, can show up with lawyers and, and evidence and argue why a conservatorship is not appropriate. And of course, the proposed conservatee can do that also. And a judge will have to make a decision at a trial. And, and in California, the conservative can ask for a jury trial as well. Now, who represents the proposed conservative? And I, I want to make a distinction between when the person is a proposed conservative mm-hmm. and when the person is under a conservatorship. Mm-hmm. So when the person is a proposed conservative under California law and law in most states, they have the right to have counsel of their own choice. Unless they're, if they're unable to retain counsel, then the court will appoint counsel for them. Okay, somebody who's experienced in, in the area and the court knows and, and can appoint that person. So that's a narrow ban because they have to be incompetent enough to merit conservatorship, but not so incompetent that they couldn't hire counsel. That's, that's right. And, it, and it's not entirely clear what it means to say that they are unable to retain counsel because until there's a conservatorship, there hasn't been an adjudication that they are incompetent, okay? So here's a perfect example. Adam Streisand is hired by Brittany, right? Mm-hmm. Her family law attorneys contact me, ask me to, to get involved because they know me and they know my reputation and that I do this kind of thing. I meet with Brittany a couple of times. Um, we have lots of communication otherwise by telephone. We talk about what the circumstances are. Now, I can tell you what I told the court because that's it's not public now. now. Right. right. It's public. And so what I told the court, what Brittany and I agreed I would tell the court, what I did tell the court is, look, she understands that this conservatorship is an inevitability. I mean, right now things are out of control and she gets that 
resisting the conservatorship is going to be very difficult. But the one thing that she wants, and, and if, difficult legally, just forgive me for asking the clarifying question, but of course, this, this is fascinating, but difficult how? Difficult that she couldn't have won? I mean, yeah. she has Adam Streisand representing her. If you had sought to oppose it, you would have successfully opposed it. Well, I mean, I appreciate your confidence in me, and I also have a high level of confidence in my own abilities. But the fact of the matter was, Noah, that there was clearly there was medical evidence that she has some fairly serious mental illness. I don't know exactly what that is. We'll talk about that a little bit um, more. But we also know, because it was very public, the the kinds of things that she, that were going on with her. I mean, she was, you know, she was out of control. Now, frankly, ask yourself how you would feel with all of the hundreds of paparazzi all over you, which I got to witness firsthand and was insane. I don't know how that doesn't make you feel crazy. I mean, it, but it's not, that's different than underlying mental illness. That's true. Yeah. yeah. Well, if you have underlying mental illness and you are hounded by hundreds of paparazzi and your husband is not allowing you to see your kids, that would make anybody pretty out of control. And, I and, and again, I'm saying out of control. I don't mean to say she's crazy or anything yeah, like course. that. Of yeah. course. Things were out of control and it was very public. And it was clear that the court, at least on an interim basis, was going to put in some protection for her. It was my judgment that what we ought to do is we ought to try to get the one thing that really, really mattered to her, which is I don't want my father controlling my life. Mm-hmm. Okay. Which is something we ought to talk about. And if we could do that, if we could get an appropriate person, an independent professional to be that conservator for some interim basis, and then work to try to figure out, all right, how do we get a little bit more control over our life and, you know, and move on. And again, also, I didn't know the extent of her, of her mental illness. When I walked into court, the judge said to me, Mr. Streisand, I have a medical report. I'm not going to show it to you from Dr. James Edward Spar. Now I know Dr. Spar. I've known him for years. I know the guy is, is a man of integrity. I know that he is the best at what he does in terms of evaluating mental illness. And the judge tells me that Dr. Spar has concluded that she suffers from mental illness to the point where she cannot retain a direct counsel. Now, my perspective was she made some pretty sound judgments, right? She was able to take my advice. Hey, let's not try to resist this. We'll look reasonable. We'll get the thing you really, really want right now, which is not your father, and then we'll work on the next step of doing away with, uh, with the conservatorship framework. I thought that was pretty sad, but I'm not a doctor, right? And if Dr. Spar says she's really that bad, I said to the, to the court, if Dr. Spar has concluded that, I, I accept that. I mean, I respect Dr. Spar, and if the court feels that she would be better served with another lawyer, that's fine. We'll be right back. Small business owners, this one's for you. Chase for Business and iHeart bring you a new podcast series called The Unshakables. This one-of-a-kind series will shine the spotlight on small business owners like you, who faced a do-or-die moment that ultimately made their business what it is today. Join hosts Ben Walter, CEO of Chase for Business, and Tanya Nebo, a lawyer and business consultant, on these storytelling journeys of trials, tribulations, and triumphs that hinged on a single event a split-second decision, or even a stroke of luck. Whether the story is about a warehouse going up in flames or a former partner stealing a whole roster of clients, each episode will showcase the grit, determination, and resourcefulness a small business owner needed to turn a pivotal situation into a springboard for success. Listen to The Unshakables now and learn more at chase.com business slash podcast. Chase, make more of what's yours. Chase mobile app is available for select mobile devices. Message and data rates may apply. J.P. Morgan Chase Bank, N.A. member, FDIC, copyright 2024. J.P. Morgan, Chase & Co. Hello, hello. This is Malcolm Gladwell from Revisionist History. Let me tell you an unconventional story 
about a healthcare group that wanted to improve their efficiency, Boston Children's Hospital. They were already a leading pediatric facility. Their patient outcomes, workflows, and delivery of care were already great. But they wondered, how can we make it better? So the hospital got to work. Their idea was to build what they called clinical mobility, meaning a system which would allow their staff to access information and interact with patients on mobile devices anywhere in the hospital. And what made that possible? 5G. The hospital rebuilt their entire system with 5G technology at its core. That infrastructure now supports thousands of phones and tablets so practitioners can communicate with patients on a whole new level. Boston Children's also made sure the system could flex and scale to handle medical advancements like robotic surgery and virtual reality for training and research. This was worlds away from how they had previously operated. This innovative work hasn't gone unnoticed, first by patients, but also by their peers. Boston Children's was a first place winner in the industry category at last year's unconventional awards from T-Mobile for Business, an event that celebrates customers who've dared to innovate for the sake of innovation. If the Boston Children's story rings a bell with you, if your team has asked the same questions about building a better business solution, I encourage you to enter this year's awards. It's a great way to be recognized for smart, disruptive thinking in front of some of your industry's most influential leaders. You can enter at tmobile.com slash unconventional awards. That's tmobile.com slash unconventional awards. I'll save you a seat. AI might be the most important new computer technology ever. It's storming every industry and literally billions of dollars are being invested. So buckle up. The problem is that AI needs a lot of speed and processing power. So how do you compete without costs spiraling out of control? It's time to upgrade to the next generation of the cloud. Oracle Cloud Infrastructure, or OCI. OCI is a single platform for your infrastructure, database, application development, and AI needs. OCI has four to eight times the bandwidth of other clouds, offers one consistent price instead of variable regional pricing, and of course, nobody does data better than Oracle. So now you can train your AI models at twice the speed and less than half the cost of other clouds. If you want to do more and spend less like Uber, 8x8, and Databricks Mosaic, take a free test drive of OCI at oracle.com slash strategic. That's oracle.com slash strategic. oracle.com slash strategic. Can I ask a, a sort of loggy question here? Sure. Was she your client at this point or was someone yes. else your client? She was no, your client. She, she was my client. She signed an engagement agreement with me. She, you know, we met, we discussed the terms. Right. So of that when the engagement. court said that she lacked the capacity to retain counsel, what did that, this is the law geek question. What did that do to your existing representational relationship with her? I mean, you had, she had signed an agreement with you <laughs> and there's the court telling you her lawyer that she lacks the capacity to retain you. So, I mean, what right. happens? Well, you know, could I have fought it? I, I probably could have fought it. I, I did have, again, respect for the conclusions that Dr. Spar reached. If she had been adjudicated as being incompetent, that would have seriously put into question whether or not she could have maintained an attorney-client relationship with me. Once she's a conservative, once there's an adjudication, she lacks capacity to contract then there's a question about whether she should be able to have a person represent her that she wants to represent her. And the law doesn't say you can't. The law doesn't say the court couldn't have said, sure, you know, Mr. Streisand, we're going to allow you to be the lawyer. But the court has more latitude at that point to say, no, we're going to appoint somebody. And it, it's important to remember something. First of all, Judge Getz was Commissioner Getz at the time. She was new to the bench. She was brand new to probate. She didn't know me. Frankly, if the decision were made today, she knows me now. I'm sure the decision would have been different. But she didn't know me. And I'm walking into the courtroom saying I represent Britney Spears. Now, I could be part of the gang who's unduly influencing her and trying to take advantage of her. I, I could be somebody who is being really being retained 
or pushed on Brittany by somebody who's manipulating her. Mm -hmm. And so I think there is an important role for the court to play in saying, you know what, it, it is important for the conservative to have the right to say this is somebody I, I want to represent me. But it's also important for the court to have the ability to say, you know what, I've got enough evidence here that makes me think, you know, it'd be better to appoint somebody to represent the conservative. That's what happened at that moment, right? The, the court then appointed different counsel for her. And then that counsel made a decision not to contest the conservatorship. Is that right? Not only that, but that counsel, Sam Ingham, made a decision for the past 12 years not to contest the appointment of her father as the conservator, which I found very curious. Now, is it conce- I, I don't know what happens in closed room between her and her counsel. Is right. it possible that a different decision was made and that she made a rational decision at that point? Or, um, or is it possible that, that the court-appointed counsel is, was not advocating the one thing that was really, really important to her? And that's a problem that I have. I mean, that's potentially a serious problem. And it also raises a puzzle that I myself don't understand. um, And you may have some insight into, which is if she wanted to contest the conservatorship, you know, in totality, or just seek a conservator who was not her father, she would need to convince her counsel to do that, right? Well, it's interesting that you say she should need to convince her counsel, right? That's an interesting word choice. You don't convince your lawyer to do something unless... Usually course, you just ask them to do it, you, right? You, you ask them and the, and the lawyer has an ethical obligation, as you know, to be a zealous advocate, even if the lawyer thinks that that it's not in the client's best interest, right? I mean, I always am brutally honest with clients, but at the end of the day, the client makes the decision, unless it's something they're asking me to do that's unethical uh, on my own part, my job is to advocate for them. And, so her and ethical, so the ethical duty of, of her attorney is if she were to say to him, listen, I want to challenge this conservatorship, he would have a duty to return to court and start a filing and a hearing to change the conservatorship, presumably. So assuming that he's behaving ethically, which we don't have any objective reason to think he isn't, it seems like the answer to that puzzle is that that's not what Britney Spears has done, that she hasn't challenged the conservatorship. And if that if that's so, then that's a puzzle that's in some ways at odds with the kind of the public thrust of the free Britney movement. Not that I understand or claim to understand the movement in any detail, but to the extent that it seems to be composed of the idea that she's being involuntarily blocked from a change in circumstances, she does have an attorney who, under the norms of ethics, the canons of ethics, would have to go to court and challenge the conservatorship if she wanted to, and he hasn't. And from that, it seems that we could infer that most likely she has not asked him to do so. Is that chain of logic sound? That is a sound chain of logic. The, the problem is there is some countervailing evidence that gives me a little bit of trouble. And that is, as I told you, the one most important thing to her when I first met with her in 2008 was, I don't want my father to be the conservator. Now, once Sam Ingham was appointed, we never heard that again until all of a sudden, 12 years later, Sam Ingham files a petition saying, I don't want my father to be the conservator. So then I ask myself, well, why did it take 12 years for him to advocate the one thing that was so important to her when I met with her in 2008? And if he wasn't advocate, and again, there may have been some reason why there was a change, of course, but if he wasn't advocating that, then maybe he wasn't advocating other things that she wanted to be advocated. And Herein lies one of the problems that I do think exists when you have to rely on a system of people who are involved and have various interests, some of which may conflict with the interests of the conservative. Sam Ingham is appointed by the court to be Brittany's lawyer. Now, Sam Ingham gets paid by making petitions to the court for approval of his fees to be paid from the conservatorship estate that's controlled by the conservator. Now, if somebody doesn't like what Sam Ingham is doing, 
they're more likely to object to his petitions for fees, and there are more likely to be questions raised about those fees. If, on the other hand, you are appearing in court and consistently saying, yes, Your Honor, I think the conservator is doing a great job. I support what the conservator wants to do. How closely do you think the conservator is going to examine the bills, especially because the conservator is not paying those bills? The conservatee is paying those bills. And so if there is a, a weakness in the system, that is one potential weakness. And the problem is, we do have to depend on people, especially lawyers, to be ethical lawyers. And I tend to believe that generally they are. There are exceptions, however, sadly. But changing the law will have, in my view, unintended consequences that will really hurt people who need protection. Are the fee applications by the lawyer representing Brittany at the court assigned lawyer public? Is it a matter of public record how much money he's paid and how frequently he's asked for it? And is it also a matter of public record whether those applications have been opposed or objected to by her father? So generally, these things would be a matter of public record. The court does have some latitude to seal those records. And I think that's what's happened in Brittany's case. Query whether that's really appropriate or not. Because the public does have a right to know. I mean, in, in our system, in the American system, I know my British colleagues always, you know, wince at this. But one of the things that, that is, is important in carrying out this issue of balancing the public's right to know versus a person's right to privacy is it has to, it has to be applied in a way that doesn't favor the rich. I represent a lot of high net worth individuals, right? What I have to say to them all the time is, just because you have a lot of money doesn't mean that you have a right to greater protection of your privacy than people who don't have a lot of money. Mm -hmm. There has to be some other reason, right? There has to be like the Patty Hearst reason. I mean, I was involved in the, in the Hearst matter. If there's a threat that, sh that somebody could be kidnapped, um, we don't want that kind of financial information out in the open. Okay, so there is an important reason for balancing those interests. But in this case so far, I believe those records have been sealed. If a person under conservatorship with a court-appointed attorney wanted to hire a different attorney and reached out, of course, she wouldn't be legally able to sign a contract with another attorney, but she could make a phone call. And then would it be permissible for the other attorney to then go to court and challenge the representational efficacy of the court-appointed attorney? So in other words, if in theory, purely hypothetical, Brittany or someone in her position were to contact you and say, listen, I'm not happy with my lawyer, what options would you have? Would you be able to go to court and say, listen, the person wants me to represent them? Yes, that is an option. But also keep in mind, and I've seen this happen, that if a conservative says to her lawyer, I don't want you to represent me, that lawyer then has an ethical obligation to, to say to the court, Your Honor, I should be relieved as counsel because I can't maintain a, a, a relationship of trust and confidence. The, the conservative does not want me to be that lawyer. And the court's going to have to make a decision about whether that's something that, the, that, that is appropriate to change the lawyer. Given the, the concerns that you have that you've expressed about whether, in fact, this lawyer have, may have been fully representing Brittany's best interests. Do you ever have regret about not about that moment when you didn't contest the court's decision to remove and replace you? I mean, I don't think you were under any ethical obligation to do otherwise. The court had made the decision, mm -hmm. and so that's on the court, and she was also going to be represented by independent counsel. So, you know, ethically, I'm, under the canons of ethics, you're clearly fine. But do you have human regret about that moment? You know, it, it's funny. First of all, I have to tell you that I, look, I've represented a lot of famous people and been involved in a lot of, you know, sort of celebrity cases and so forth. And for me in my career, this was, uh, you know, kind of a blip. So it's not like, well, you know, this is Britney Spears and, you know, the representation of my lifetime. But I do, I, I, I accepted that people were acting honorably and ethically as I thought I was when I agreed to 
step aside and say, okay, if the court believes based on the evidence the court has that it's really more appropriate for an independent counsel and, and, and that would make the court more comfortable and maybe even more effective, right? Because if the court has appointed somebody, the court at least should have confidence that that is a person that the court can trust and rely on, not necessarily somebody who's just walking in off the street and saying, I represent Britney Spears. So I, I really did believe that that might actually be helpful to Brittany at that moment. I have to say that as time has gone by, the one thing I keep saying to people is we, we, we just don't know what we don't know, right? So, for example, these Republican congressmen who have now you know, demanded hearings have said the conservatorships are used to take advantage of people and manipulate the courts and that the Brittany case is the prime example. Well, says who? Based on what evidence? We don't really know what the mental illness is that she may have. We don't really know what's going on behind closed doors. And as you pointed out, in 13 years, assuming that her lawyer is acting ethically, she could have at any time in those 13 years, she could have every single day for 13 years, petitioned the court to terminate the conservatorship and be prepared to come forward with evidence showing that she doesn't need a conservatorship. And she's never done that. Or she could have just gone on Facebook or Instagram and said, I'm unhappy with my attorney or I don't like this conservatorship. It wouldn't require any great, you now, know. Now, let me give you, the, give you the retort by the Free Britney movement to that, though. They'll say, and they have a point, which is, yes, but they're using her children as pawns. They're threatening her that, you know, you won't have visitation rights. We'll take your kids away if you complain. Okay. Now, again, nobody really knows what's actually being said. And, what and that would be on. fundamentally unethical of her attorney. It would be fundamentally unethical of her attorney. And but I will say this. Imagine a scenario where you have, say, a sister who is severely mentally handicapped um, or she's, she's got a terrible drug problem or drinking problem and she's a danger to her kids. And you say, look, unless you go into treatment, I'm going to go to the family law court and say you shouldn't have custodial rights over your children. OK, so. You can't just look at everything in a vacuum and say, oh, but right. they're using her kids as a pawn. Well, first of all, we don't know. But right. even even if there is some suggestion, bear in mind the other side, which is it, it may not be inappropriate. You know, it's always struck me that Britney Spears's public story from as long as, you know, I've been aware of her in the media, which is, you know, pretty much as long as she's been in the media, which is a long time now, has always functioned as a kind of stand-in or, you know, morality tale for whatever preoccupations we have at a given moment. Mm. You know, are we worried about, you know, the emerging sexuality of young women? Well, let's turn that into the Britney story. You know, are we worried about mental health issues around childbirth? Let's turn that into the Britney story. I'm interested in what it means this time, because my, my takeaway from your very, very cogent analysis is that we don't really know whether this is a tragedy which it would be if she were in the grips of unethical actors who were threatening her and making it difficult for her to object to representation, or whether it's an instance of the system more or less working the way it should be, in that there is a conservator, she has representation, her money is in a trust, and she's actually getting what she needs and doesn't seem to be objecting to it. So we have just profound uncertainty around this. That's exactly right. So if that's the case, I guess my question is, this is really a psychological question rather than a legal one, but what is the, our preoccupation that the Free Britney movement is focused on now? And is it maybe the idea that women in general and young women in particular are really vulnerable to judgments made by men who say, you know, you're not responsible enough to take care of yourself. We're taking away your agency. Is this maybe a metaphor for agency in some broader sense? I think that's absolutely right. The thing that was wrenching for me in watching the documentary is really seeing the, frankly, the misogyny and, and the sexism. And the, I mean, from the moment she's a little girl on stage and Ed McMahon is sexualizing her. So then it does lead into questions about, um, is she being treated differently 
in this conservatorship process because she's a woman? Is she more vulnerable to a system that is paternalistic, right? In all senses of the term. Yeah. In all senses of the terms, right? Yeah. Putting her father in control of her life, that, you know, sort of one person we don't want. By the way, I, I do want to mention about that. You know, the conservator could have been thousands of different people, mm-hmm. right? It could have been anybody. Mm-hmm. It didn't have to be her father. And if the one thing that this system is designed to do is to help vulnerable people, why in the world would you make the, give the control and the power to the person that makes her feel less in control or makes her yeah. feel more vulnerable? Mm-hmm. So, Well, I want to thank you for just an extraordinarily clear and direct mm-hmm. explanation of everything and also for your, your candor about your own experiences and your overall analysis. If you ever you know get bored of being a <laughs> celebrity lawyer, you can always be a law professor on the side. <laughs> so thank you well, really for the, for the explanations. Well, thank you. I, I want you to know I, I've had requests, you know, frankly, all over the world to be interviewed, do podcasts, documentaries, TV, whatever. I've ignored all of it. Yours is, uh, is the one request that I, that I answered. I really admire you. I'm trying also to forgive you for our latest Supreme Court justice, but I, but I really do. I appreciate you. I admire you. I hope you are right about our Supreme Court justice. But it's been a real pleasure to talk to you. Thank you very much. And I really am deeply grateful that you, that you agreed, notwithstanding my views about the Supreme <laughs> Court, to, to join us. So th- thank you very much. You're very welcome. That fascinating conversation with Adam Streisand tells you a lot about the complexities of conservatorship and indeed about power. In fact, just listening to that conversation, you hear what an excellent, brilliant lawyer who is hired by those with unlimited resources sounds like and how he thinks about and analyzes legal issues. That alone is always a matter of real value. What really surprised me most about the conversation were the details of the process, which was not really detailed in the documentary, of how Adam was hired by Britney Spears, how he went into court and was then effectively told by the judge, you can't represent her because she's not capable of hiring you. That put Adam in an extremely difficult position of trying to decide whether he should fight the judge's determination or alternatively, acquiesce in a judgment that was dependent on the opinion of a doctor. And as Adam explained, he ended up making the judgment that there might be reasons for the court to remove him and replace him with a court-appointed attorney, because after all, how would the court know that he was legitimate and ethical himself? That's a classic example and a really surprising one of the kind of difficult decision that lawyers sometimes have to make in real time. Someone has hired you, which means that she wants you to represent her. Then a court is telling you she lacked the capacity to do so. That is not a simple decision to make, and it both fascinated and surprised me to hear that Adam was put in that situation. Under the conservatorship system as it exists, Brittany does, at least in principle, have mechanisms she could use to draw attention to any dislike or dissatisfaction that she has with her lawyer or with the conservatorship. But we don't know, as Adam emphasized, whether there are potential distortions in the system that nevertheless exist, in which Brittany is somehow being threatened so that she's unable to raise those concerns or feels she's unable to raise those concerns. The whole issue is therefore at least as complicated, and I think actually much more complicated, than it appeared to be in the documentary. And it demonstrates that power is complexly deployed in our legal system. You could be very rich and very famous and still find yourself represented by a court-appointed attorney and perhaps without the power to change the basic circumstances in which you are operating legally speaking. At the same time, there are also protections available in this system. As Adam pointed out, Brittany can leave her house. The conservator cannot, in practical terms, block her from doing most of the things that she might choose to do. And what's more, her assets are in trust, and the trustee of that trust is not the conservator. The takeaway? Power 
is deployed in very complicated ways in the legal system. The legal system designs itself and tries to operate in such a way as to use mutual checks so that lawyers check lawyers and we reduce the probabilities of fundamental distortion. But as Adam said, that process still depends to a great extent on the assumption that lawyers will behave ethically. I would love to believe as a law professor and a person who cares about the legal system that all lawyers are ethical. But as probably every single person listening knows, that's just not always the case. There is no magic bullet solution to the potential for unethical lawyering, and it remains a challenge to figure out how legal power can be deployed as ethically as is possible. Until the next time I speak to you, be careful, be safe, and be well. Deep Background is brought to you by Pushkin Industries. Our producer is Mo Laborde. Our engineer is Martin Gonzalez. And our showrunner is Sophie Crane McKibben. Editorial support from Noam Osband. Theme music by Luis Guerra. At Pushkin, thanks to Mia Lobel, Julia Barton, Lydia Jean Cott, Heather Fain, Carly Migliori, Maggie Taylor, Eric Sandler, and Jacob Weisberg. You can find me on Twitter at Noah R. Feldman. I also write a column for Bloomberg Opinion, which you can find at Bloomberg.com slash Feldman. To discover Bloomberg's original slate of podcasts, go to Bloomberg.com slash podcasts. And if you liked what you heard today, please write a review or tell a friend. This is Deep Background. Live Nation presents Concert Week. Now through May 14th, get $25 tickets to over 5,000 shows. That's up to 75% off a summer full of your favorite artists like 21 Savage, Alanis Morissette, Cage the Elephant, Celeste Barber, Dirk Bentley, Fade, Hootie and the Blowfish, Janet Jackson, Kids Bob Kids, Megan Trainor, Bissell Puma, Sarah McLaughlin. Get tickets to more than 5,000 summer shows for just $25. Until now through May 14th. Visit LiveNation.com slash Concert to learn more and plan your summer with Sean Paul, Sum 41, 30 Seconds from Mars, oh, and Two Door Cinema Club. Are you spending more time in your basement now that it's your rec room, office, kids' playroom, or home gym? Well, you need to ventilate those spaces to remove stagnant, musty air. For over 20 years, the Easy Breathe Ventilation System exchanges dirty, damp air for cleaner, drier, healthier air. Take charge of your indoor air with your own Easy Breathe Ventilation System. You can get it installed, or DIY kits are available. Just call 866-822-7328 or visit TakeChargeOfYourAir.com and receive 20% off today. Hey guys, you know what this playground could use? A wine country, huh? A redwood forest would be cool. Ski slopes! Wait! Did we just invent California? Discover why California is the ultimate playground at visitcalifornia.com.